Church, it is good to be back with you after several weeks of being sick. I am the walking Petri dish of Hepzibah. I've had COVID three times, so pray for your pastor uh, and quit shaking my hand if you have COVID, please. All right? I don't know who's doing it, but uh, somebody's trying to mess with me. And, uh, but church, we are glad to be here today on uh, this, this Sunday morning. And today we have an interesting topic that we're going to deal with. As you know, here at Hepzibah, we preach expositionally. We go through book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, right through uh, the books that, that we're looking at. And my hope is, I've been here, oh my goodness, 25 years, and I know between Bill and I, we have covered so much of the Bible over the years that he and I have pastored here. And you are blessed to be at a church where there is a commitment on all levels from our connect group teachers to uh, the leadership of your pastors and, and the elders of this church to know that you're in a place where the Word of God is going to be preached. And that means that we handle any and every topic. I was laughing last week as Josh was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have to preach on church discipline. But listen, all these topics are things that God has for us. There's not a part of the Word of God that is not relevant to our lives today. There's not a part of the Word of God that we don't need. And in fact, this book of Corinthians, I chose it because it is a message that needs to be heard throughout America, throughout Western culture, certainly in our churches. We need to discuss the topics that this book brings to us. Now, I'm going to give you a a, a one-week heads up. Starting next week, we get into the topic of sex. If you haven't had a conversation with your child, you might want to make sure that you get introduced to our children's church, okay? Now, I'm just telling you, because whatever we talk about over the next few weeks, I don't want any letters to me. I'm not going to be crass. I'm not going to be rude. I'm not going to... I'm going to keep it as PG as I can keep it. But the reality is, I'm going to probably cause questions for young children in the next few weeks. So you have to decide if you're ready to have that conversation. Let me go ahead and tell you, the world is having it. The schools are having it. It probably ain't a bad idea for us as parents to have the conversation, but you've been warned, all right? The children's church, you go up the stairs all the way to the end of the hallway, you will find a, a, a service for them, but I'm going to go ahead and warn you, they typically do what I preach, so I'm going to be curious to see how Miss Terry handles it, so I'm really looking forward to the next few weeks. I don't know if they've read ahead because I haven't seen Panic yet. Uh, but I can't wait to hear how it goes in, in children's church. So uh, just you've been warned, all right? You've been told. So today, before we get into those topics, we're going to continue on, on how believers are supposed to settle disputes. Last week we looked at a, when a believer is sinning, and last week we talked about an issue of a man who was literally sleeping with his stepmother, and the church hadn't done anything about it. Rather than disciplining this man, rather than confronting the sin in the midst of them, it said that the church had become arrogant and unwilling to deal with sin. And we were reminded that when we don't deal with sin inside the church, the church is at risk. A little bit of leaven, right? Ruins the whole batch. The reality is, if we accept sin on, (coughs) I knew this was going to happen, on any level inside the church, it's just going to continue to spread in the lives of people. And what we need to be sure of is that we are willing to speak truth in love to one another. And the Bible says that, you know what, God is going to judge the world, but we inside the body of believers have got to be willing to judge one another. Now, see, some of you, I know we talked last week. We want to say, judge not lest you be judged. Folks, listen, Paul said, I am not ashamed to judge in this situation. I'm going to judge as if I'm there. I'm not there. But hearing what is occurring, I can rightly judge this situation. And he says that, listen, you need to ban this man from that close fellowship. Let him understand the weight of his sin and the weight of his choices so that his soul might not be lost. That's hard talk, isn't it? Well, this week, Paul's going to start off out of the gate with things like, how dare you? Shame on you. Don't you know? This week, it isn't going to get any easier because he's still dealing with this issue of conflict in the church. How do we resolve rightly conflict within the body of Christ? What obviously is happening in this church, as you're going to see as we read this text, is that this is a culture, much like our culture today, that is sue happy. A culture that loves lawsuits. 
Listen, we live in a culture today that, that really, I mean, when you think about it, back in that day, they loved to have lawsuits out in the open, out in the open marketplace, and you would bring issues about your friend and about people that were around you, and you would hash it out in front of the whole community, and it was one of those things, it was like entertainment for people, this liturgical process. And I want you to see that with the, liturg with, with the litigation that is happening it's much like it is today. Have you noticed that we have a station on our television called Court TV? It's entertainment, isn't it? I mean, literally, the most serious matters that we face in the world, like murder, in many ways have become entertainment for us. We watch it and we follow it and we have things like the Johnny Depp case that just consumes all of the news cycles and all over Facebook and all over everywhere. Where this church was and the culture that it was in, it's no different than the culture that we live in and the things that we're going to discuss today, they need to be discussed. We live in a country, listen, where 80 to 90 million lawsuits are filed every year. That's almost three. Are you ready for this? I mean, think about this. Think of how many, 30 to 90, think of how many court cases that is in a year. 70% of the world's lawyers, guess where they live? Guess where they practice? In America. 50,000 will be added every year. We live in a culture where literally we're at the point, if you haven't noticed, that people love to take people to court. You know why? Because it's easier to make money at court than at a job. You know why? Because it's expensive to go to court, isn't it? We have people that literally will take cases to court because they know that a company like Coca-Cola, McDonald's, whoever, that it is cheaper for the company to settle for half a million dollars than to take the court case. Than to go to court and try to defend themselves, even if they're innocent, even if they've done nothing wrong. We actually have a system where people take others to court knowing that they will settle because it's too expensive to litigate. That's the culture that we are living in. I mean, crazy lawsuits. There was a man a few years ago, he sued McDonald's. You know why? He said that he was depressed and the Happy Meal didn't make him happy. Let that sink in. A man sued Budweiser. You know why? Because he said Budweiser failed to help him attract beautiful women. A woman purchased a new 32-foot Winnebago motorhome from a dealership in Oklahoma. She put it on cruise control. She was probably blonde. And walked away. <laughs> Come on. Come, now you knew that was coming. Was it? <laughs> Y'all knew that was coming. Listen, after today, y'all can't even take me to court, so okay? So just own it. Just suck it up. No, literally, the woman puts it in, in um, cruise control. And guess what she did? She got up and started going about doing her thing in the Winnebago, wrecks it, and then sues Winnebago for not making it clear that cruise control meant she still had to sit at the driving wheel. I guess she mistake it for autopilot. And she tried to sue Winnebago. My favorite was the man who sued King's Hawaiian Sweet Rolls. How many of y'all love them things? He sued because he one day found out they actually weren't made in Hawaii. Do you see where we are as a culture? Do you see what's happening to us? And listen, sometimes these things even happen within the church. And, and listen, we've made a mockery even of our system of lawyers. Everywhere you go, there are jokes about lawyers, right? It's a profession that most of us, we make jokes more than we take it serious. Whether we should or we shouldn't, where we look at where we are as a country, it leads us to that place. Here's a joke. Two lawyers were walking and they were negotiating a case. Look, said one, let's be honest with each other. Okay, you first, replied the other. That was the end of their discussion. <laughs> Even in the 1850s, a man named Addison Misner, who was an architect, he made a statement that, as a pastor, I see it over and over and over. 
Instead of saying, where there's a will, there's a way, he said, where there's a will, there's a lawsuit. Families fighting against families. Christian fighting against Christian. How do we deal with the issues and the problems that we're facing? And here's what Paul has to say. Obviously, within this church, there's at least one believer who has taken another believer to court. Not over a criminal issue, over a trivial issue. Over an issue that should be dealt with easily within a body of believers. Let me read this to you in verse, chapter 6, verse 1 through 11. He says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren. But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves, you are wrong and you defraud. You do this even to your brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? Or the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Look at how he begins chapter 6. And as we work through this outline this morning, there's just three simple points that I want you to see, but he, he begins by saying, how dare you? It's strong wording, isn't it? I mean, when somebody says to you, how dare you, it gets your attention. You start to realize that this is an issue that is important to the Apostle Paul because this is an issue that is tearing apart the church. Paul loves the church. Paul loves the unity of the church. He loves Christ who is ruler over the church. And he recognizes that all this division, whether it's because of sin, like we studied at the end of the last chapter, a, a grievous sin, or whether it's an issue where there is just a trivial disagreement, it doesn't make a difference. All of this works against the unity of the body of believers, and it is the way that the world will know that we are followers of Jesus, is that we love each other, that we live with righteousness, that we live with morality, that we live as people that ought to be able to deal with their circumstances. And Paul is saying, how dare you? Now, if you ask who is he speaking to in the church, most likely he's probably not speaking to the Jews in his church. If you remember, this is a church that's made up of both Jews and Gentiles. It's probably not the Jews that are struggling with this because the Jews have already come to understand this issue within their culture. Jewish culture did not see the law as entertainment. It didn't see litigation as entertainment. What it saw was that the law should be set aside in one way that when there is an issue between brothers, it ought to be dealt with within synagogues. It ought to be dealt with within judges among the people of God. What they recognized was, and what God's word actually said, was that it's almost blasphemy. They equate it to blasphemy that you would go outside the people of God to find truth because it's the people of God that are supposed to be the keepers of what is true because they have what? They have God's word. We know what's right. We know what's good. We have wisdom. We have truth. And he's saying, why in the world would you? How dare you go outside of the body of believers to settle disputes? You're going to people who don't know the truth, asking them to settle issues of truth. 
For Paul, it's a great offense. For Paul, he's saying, listen, you don't know how far you've gone. You don't know how big the issues are within your church. So if he's not talking to the Jews, then obviously he's probably dealing with the Gentiles because the Greeks were the ones who were entertained by it. And he asks them this question. Why do you seek truth from the unrighteous rather than the saints? He's saying what you need is not a lawyer. What you need is not a professional judge to deal with the issues that are going on inside this church. And folks, there are lots of issues that go on inside of a church, right? Listen, inside of a church, you know what can happen? I would like to think that we all want to help each other with business, right? That each of us would want to deal with the people in the church maybe who... Are, are, are in a certain field, whether they're contractors, whether they're tow truck drivers, whether, whether they're doctors, whether they're whatever it is that they are, that you know, within the body of believers that, that we probably work together. But what happens, let's say, for instance, if you had a mechanic, let's say Randy took advantage of all of us with it. We found out, you know what, he's totally overcharging us. I shouldn't have to go to a lawyer to figure out how to get right with Randy. Now, let me tell you something. That's not Randy at all. But if it was Randy, don't you see how the word of God is saying that we're brothers? We know what is right and wrong. And let's say that Randy said he fixed it. He didn't fix it, yet he charged me. You see how we ought to be able to go with a pastor, with connect group leaders? We ought to be able to go with other deacons. He's a deacon in our church. If that was the case, shouldn't the other deacons be able to come around and mediate this thing? And speak truth into a situation. And you see, no matter what it is that we're facing in this body of believers, when someone has been wronged, whether it's gossip, I mean, you pick the sin. Whether it's a person, listen, that maybe has fallen into an affair. Shouldn't the church have the wisdom? Shouldn't the church love enough? Shouldn't the church care enough that rather than seeking to take it to the outside world, that we should be able to deal with it ourselves because we love each other? Shouldn't we be able to forgive each other? Randy, what are you saying? Randy? Huh? <laughs> I just looked at you, Randy, and you're my best friend. Listen, what, I, mean, it's, it, it, I know you would never do it. Lane, I'm not so sure of. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, no I'm just kidding. Lane, I'm just kidding. But these are issues that all of us are going to face. And these are issues that are going to pop up within the church. And he says, listen, you don't need a professional attorney. What you need is to love God. What you need is to love other people. What you need is to have a sense of justice. What you need is to be impartial. You need to have biblical knowledge. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to find people who are filled with the gift of wisdom. Those people, those things should exist within a church. And when they don't exist within a church, what does that say about the church? And you can see why Paul is so upset. He asked another question. Don't you know that God's people will one day judge the world and angels? And, and you see, he's, he's saying, and listen, there are some in this room that for the first time you just heard that there's going to come a day. Remember that we are co-heirs with Christ, right? And there's going to be a day when God through his son Jesus, will judge the world. And you know what he says? I mean, you think about that for a second. He says that we so are, are co-heirs with Christ that we also will be there to bring righteous judgment to the world, and not just the world, but to angels. Meaning those fallen angels, those demons, the devil himself, he would love nothing more than to send all of you to hell. You know why? Because if that isn't what happens to you, you will one day stand in judgment over him. Those of you that were at one point less than the angels, Jesus Christ has saved you, made a co-heir, made you a co-heir with Christ, and now you are greater than the angels. It says that you will literally judge the world and angels. And he says, if you've been tasked, if you've been assigned 
to that great responsibility right now in time and space, you can't figure out how to settle disagreements among yourselves? He says, that's tragic. He says, you've forgotten who you are. You're, you don't know your destiny. And here's where he adds on it. He says, shame on you. I mean, I don't know how else to, to put what it is that he, he says. He says, it is to your shame. That you don't have anyone wise enough to handle this. Now you see, if we remember the whole book, in the beginning, Paul was dealing with the church saying that you guys all think you're so wise. You think that you personally hold knowledge, you personally hold truth. He's saying that, you know what, you think that within yourself, apart from God, you are so wise. And now he looks at this same church and says, if you're so wise, how come you can't even handle Simple disputes among yourselves. You hear the sarcasm? Shame on you that you're not mature enough. Shame on you that you don't love each other enough. Shame on you that you don't care about the unity of the church, the testimony of Christ. And you would let this go beyond the walls of the church when the church has been called to handle it and to deal with it. And we're going to talk... Because I know there's a question in your mind of when do you bring in the authorities. We're going to talk about that. So he starts with how dare you, but then you get to verse 7 and 8 and listen to what he says. He says, you have already lost. He said, just by having to have this discussion, what I realize is that the church in Corinth, you've already lost. You're already in a position that you shouldn't find yourself in. He says, actually... It is already a defeat for you. You see that in verse 7? That you have lawsuits with each other. Because this is happening, it is already a defeat. And then look what he says. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? That's making some of y'all's heads want to pop. Because in America, on this day of independence, right? You know what we are? We're all about our what? Our rights. Sometimes what we define as our rights is going to come in complete conflict with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have the right to hit you if you hit me. What does Jesus turn around and say? Turn the other cheek. I have a right if I let you borrow my cloak, you better give it back because if you don't, then I'm going to take you to court and I'm going to sue you and embarrass you. What did Jesus say? Give me your shirt too. Woo. You see, but inside of us as Americans, we want to say, no, it's my right. It's my right. It's my right. Listen, as a believer, let me go ahead and share something with you. You're not of this world. You are not an American first and a Christian second. You are a Christian first and an American second. And let me tell you something about yourself if you're in Christ. You're dead. And dead men, guess what they don't have? They don't have rights. It's hard to swallow, isn't it? And before you get on your high horse and say, Aaron, you don't know what you're talking. You don't think Jesus could have stood up in the midst of his flogging and demanded his right? You think we'd have had a cross? If Jesus would have stood and said, it's my right, you worship me. Don't strike me, don't curse me, don't hit me. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't demand his rights? You see, somehow we've come to believe that Jesus is American. And we try to make him look like what we want to shape our country to be. Listen, I love our freedom. There's so much about America we ought to celebrate 
and be glad in. But if you think that the trajectory of America today is in line with God's word and that all this talk about our rights doesn't come in confrontation with the gospel, you're wrong. He says, listen, you've already lost. You've already lost. How have we lost? He says, you've lost your way. You know what Paul ultimately is going to say to them? This is not a good witness. The way you're fighting. What he's saying is, one of you is going to take this to a lawyer and somebody's going to win, but in the end, guess what? For the church, nobody won. For the testimony of Christ, nobody won. For the relationship between the two of you, nobody won. Everybody what? Everybody lost. Listen, when Deacon Dan and small group leader Sally go to court and they're cussing each other and they're fighting each other and they're pulling each other's hair, listen, we look more like Jerry Springer than the church, right? He says, secondly, you've lost your love for one another. That's what I was saying. The Corinthian church, they're just like modern Americans. They were addicted to their rights. But in clinging to their rights so fiercely, Paul says, you've shown utter failure. He said, because you went to court against your brother, you've already lost your testimony. You see, Paul gives a very hard teaching here. You know what he was saying? He's saying, some of you are just fighting over trivial things like they didn't give me back this or that. You know what he's saying? Why as a believer didn't you just suck it up and say, you apparently need it more than me? Do you hear the call of God on a believer's life? Not to your rights, but he says, you know what? That means that sometimes you're going to do good and that good's going to be taken advantage of you. And you know what he says? Go ahead and accept being defrauded. I mean, unless I'm reading my Bible upside down and backwards, isn't that what he just said? He says, look, why not be wronged? You've got to accept that sometimes these things are going to happen, but you know what? Sometimes when we love someone enough, will accept being wronged. Again, the cross. You know how hard it must have been for Jesus to wash Judas' feet? If you remember in that moment, wasn't it made clear in the Gospels that Jesus knew who would betray him? See, Jesus doesn't ask us to go where he hasn't gone himself. To do what he hasn't done himself. He's shown us by his example that you know what? There are going to be times that you are wronged. Leave that judgment to the Lord. And listen, and there are times that doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't willing to confront issues or to confront sin. But if we're going to confront it, let's confront it as a body of believers when we talk about confronting sin. That's what the church does. It helps deal with sin. It helps us overcome sin. It leads us to salvation that transforms our life, that brings about the eradication of sin in our lives. Where we become more and more like Jesus each and every day. And he says, you've already lost your testimony. He says, you've lost your way. Why are you taking this course of action? This shows you that you've already lost your way, the way that you're dealing with someone that you say you love, someone that's a brother in Christ. You're not showing love for them when you do this. But worse off, he says you've lost your testimony. You know why it says there that we've lost our testimony? Because the world is watching us. They want to see 
whether or not we are hypocrites. They want to see, do we really love our neighbor? Do we really love our brother in Christ? If you don't believe that's what they're doing, then why would Jesus say it was so important that we love one another? Because by our love, that's how. They know that we are his disciples. And don't think for a second that the world is not watching. That's why it matters. Because our whole life is part of our Christian faith. Our whole life is part of our Christian witness. There is no part of your life that you can say, this isn't about Christ. This isn't about my Christianity. We don't get to segment out life and say, this is secular and this is sacred. All of it is sacred. All of it is a testimony to Jesus. You can't say, as long as I give on Sunday, as long as I park my rear end in a chair at Hepzibah on Sunday, I can live the rest of the week how I want. All that matters is what I do on Sunday, not Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. The devil's lying to you if you believe that. It's all God's. And the world is watching how we do business, how we deal with each other. The whole town of Windale, Zebulun, Nightdale, all of them are watching. So I would think that we want to speak well and we want to live well on behalf of the name of Jesus Christ. So here's the question that we should be asking when we have disputes with each other. If you want to write something down, write this down, please. At what cost will I pursue this? That's what we need to be asking. At what cost will I pursue this? It's not just a financial question, but the question ought to be, what will this do to my friendship with that Christian? What will this do to the witness of the gospel? What will this do to our church? What will this do to the name of Jesus? How will this appear outside of our church to our non-Christian friends, to our family, to our media? You have to look at these things in our life and you have to slow down and ask the question, is it worth it? Sometimes we're so desperate for our right and to settle our disputes, we will ruin a relationship forever. And the watching world will lose any chance to witness to them as they watch the circus. Folks, we're blessed here at Hepzibah. There are churches in America right now, big churches, good churches, that look like they have everything going right for them, that they're in the middle of lawsuits among members against pastors and pastors against members and members against members, and literally the media is having a heyday with those churches. Lastly, remember who you are. Remember who you are. He says, listen, you've been changed. You see, to the person who was doing the lawsuits, he's saying to them, why have you done this? Why have you pursued this? Why are you taking this case to the lost, looking for truth, those who don't know the truth, instead of going within a body of believers to find peace and find a way to resolve this. And if it can't be resolved, to be able to move on and still love a person and still care for a person instead of losing it over trivial things. And then he gets to this point, he says, but I want you, the brother who did the wrong, you need to understand something too. He says, here's the issue in the church. There are too many people. Are you ready for this? There are too many people that sit in pews just like this, chairs just like this, that they believe that their action has nothing to do with their Christian faith. They think that as long as I can say, Jesus died on the cross for me, as long as I can say, I was baptized, as long as I can say, I attend church regularly, it doesn't matter how I live. Nothing is more damning than that statement. Faith without works, church, guess what it is? Dead, dead, dead. 
faith that doesn't lead to transformation is not saving faith. Faith that doesn't bear fruit is not saving faith. If you can say, I'm saved, but I'm going to live the same way I've always lived, folks, you have never repented. And unless you repent, the Bible says, you will all likewise perish. And you know what he says to this man? Listen to what he says, whoever this guy was. He says, on the contrary, or I'm sorry, in verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous, listen to this, will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous, let me say that again, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Only those who are righteous. And I know for some of you, your head just, everything just locked up. Because you're wanting to say, none of us are righteous. And you're exactly right. We don't have a righteousness to offer God that is going to warrant for us entrance into the kingdom of God. It's not because we are righteous. He said, in fact, when God found all of us, listen to the description. He says, don't be deceived, fornicators, those who, all kinds of sexual immorality, whether it's sex outside of marriage, before marriage, whether it's pornography, pedophilia, any, you name a sexual perversion, he's saying, fornicators, no, idolaters, that's not just money, that can be a relationship, That can be worshiping money and things. That can be a lot of things. That's just not a little Buddha that you have on your wall. He says, not idolaters, not adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. He says, they, none of them, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then look what he says in verse 11. Such were some of you. The truth is, he could have just as easy said, such are all of you. See, there are people here today that they're wondering, what can I do in a church? I've come and I've visited, but you know what? I'm not like these people. I'm a, I'm a sinner. I, what play, why? Should I be able to be here, come here? Why would God hear me, see me, forgive me? Let me, let me show you something. Let me, let me read this again. Any of you that have ever been fornicators, idolaters, any of you who have been adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, If you were ever any of those, why don't you stand up? Really? Listen, these are my people. Because every one of us in here it is not because of our righteousness. Listen, all of us. Let's add to, listen, other places, it's going to say liars. If I didn't get all of you standing, let me try that one. Yeah. yeah. People who don't obey their parents. I mean, I don't know what I got to say to get everybody up. Have a seat, church. But you know what matters in eternity? Those of us who stood, who know Christ, that's who we were. That's the way we used to live. That's what we used to practice day in and day out. We stood and we worked against what God wanted for us and called us to be and created us to be. We hadn't surrendered to him yet. We hadn't followed him yet. And you know what makes the difference today for those who stood, who know Christ? That's who they were, but they've been changed. When we got saved, Christ transformed 
us from the inside out. He gave us a new nature that no longer wants to sin, but wants to be righteous, that wants to follow him, a heart that no longer loves sin, but hates sin and strives to be more and more holy like the God that we serve. And listen to what he says in verse 11. He says, you've been changed because, let me tell you, as a believer in Christ, you were washed. Isn't that good news? That we came to the Lord soiled, dirty, a mess. All those things that we mentioned, that is not who any of us want to be. And we came wretched before him, dirty, disgusting before him. And you know what it says that he did? He washed us. Though your sins are as scarlet, what does he say? Now I can make them white as snow. Folks, if that don't make you want to get up and go around the room and yell and shout, I don't know what will. That's not who we are anymore. We've been washed. Listen to what else it says. You've been sanctified. As a believer, he says, what place does any of this have in the church, any of these divisions? You know what he's ultimately saying? These shouldn't even be here because if we are who we say we are, what business do we have defrauding another person? What business do we have cussing at another person? What business do we have leaving our spouse for another person? What business do we have? That's not who we are. That's who we were. And by that fact alone that it's happening, you're forgetting that you've been changed. You've been sanctified. That means, listen, you've been set apart. You have been called to a life of holiness where you are following Jesus and day by day, moment by moment, you're being conformed into his, transformed into his image. You're not being conformed to the world anymore. You're transformed into the image of Jesus. And every day that you live, you're supposed to be walking closer and closer to him. And he says, you were justified. That's not just that God declared you not guilty. You know what it means when it says you were justified? He declared you righteous. He literally looked at you with all of your sin and he said, my son Jesus died on the cross. You placed your faith in him. You believe that he died in your place for your sins and he took your whole sin debt and he paid it on the cross. And every righteous act that he ever did and every act that Jesus did did was righteous all of that righteousness he said now it is given to you and when i stand before god he doesn't see the idolater he doesn't see the fornicator he doesn't see the drunkard he doesn't see all those things that i was at some point in my life you know what he sees he sees jesus i'm clothed in christ's righteousness Amen? And folks, that ought to change this whole discussion. It ought to make lawsuits not even necessary. It ought to make disputes disappear within the body of Christ. But you know what? We realize that we struggle. We realize that every once in a while these sins are going to creep in. And he says, when they do, pray tell, he says, tell me why in the world you've got to go outside the church to settle what is inside the church. And you say, Pastor Aaron, what about criminal? Folks, there's a reason we have. That's what Romans 13 is for. He's given us judges. He's given us governors. He's given us rulers. And you know what? When there are criminal acts that take place, we are to deal with the government in those things because the government deals with the criminal. We deal with sin. Church, don't call 911 and be like, oh, uh, uh, this is Aaron over at Hepzibah. Someone gossiped about me today. I'm under the bed, and I think I can hear them in my room. Is that not stupid? Who should be dealing with gossip? 911? Who? The church, the Lord, us, because the church is here to help deal with sin. But if the problem at your house is you found out that there is an Al Qaeda cell and you keep hearing ticking things, don't call Pastor Aaron, call the police. Do you understand the difference? We're talking about rape and murder and molestation and things like that. There is a place for the police. They are 
to answer for the crimes that they have committed. But he's saying these are trivial things. These are issues of sin, not crime. And he says, what does it say about our church if we can't deal with the sin that is within our own church? You see, at the end of the day, what I hope all of us see is that God can take the kind of people described in 1 Corinthians 9, or chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, that we read through that list of who we were. Isn't it good news? Aren't we to celebrate that God can take the people described in 9 and 10 and make them into the kind of people that are described in verse 11? And you see, you're here today saying, I don't know if God could forgive me. Listen, you're sitting in a room full of idolaters, fornicators, adulterers who've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ whose sins have been paid for and they're walking a different path. They're following not themselves, but Jesus. And the invitation for you today is to believe, to finally believe that, you know what, Jesus will meet you right where you are and he will forgive you if you will place your faith in him. If you will believe that Jesus died in your place on Calvary's cross to die for your sins, he was buried, he rose again on the third day, he can give you eternal life. He can change your today and your forever. But you have to repent. You see, the story of all those who stood, that should be the story of who we were, not who we are. Because to follow Jesus, it does mean that you have to repent, turn from your sin. You say, I don't think I can. You're right, you can't. You've tried. I'm asking you to put your life in the hands of Jesus and trust that he can change you. Surrender. Stop fighting him today. And see, I don't care what we're talking about, lawsuits, church discipline, you know where it all ends up? Back at the feet of Jesus. The author, the perfecter of our faith, the one who can change our lives. Father, we just pray today, Lord, as the musicians come, that you would move in our midst, that you would show someone here that it doesn't take a perfect person to be saved. Those don't exist. It takes a humble person, a broken person, a person who's willing to recognize their sinfulness and their need for Christ. And Father, I just pray that today someone here would answer the call to be saved first and foremost, that they would recognize that while they may be on that list and indeed if they die in their sins, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven because none of those people will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But Lord Jesus, if they will believe that you were their substitute, that you died in their place, that the penalty for their sin has been paid, Lord, they can find life today. And so, Father, I pray that they will cry out to you in repentance, that they'll turn from their sins and trust you to save them and to change them, that they will follow you with their whole heart, that they'll begin this journey of transformation that you promised. You can wash them. You can sanctify them. You can justify them if they will just put their faith in you. Father, for us as believers, we have to ask the question, why is a chapter like this even necessary? Why don't we love each other? Why would we defraud each other? Why would we sin against each other? Why would we do these things? If we're followers of Jesus, we should be living lives of faithfulness, generosity, gentleness, patience, lives of self-control so that these things don't even become an issue within our body. And if they do, thank you, God, for placing godly men and women around us that if we would just go to them, they could help us navigate. So, Father, you have much to say to us today. And, Father, I pray that we would never forget what you've done for us. Lord, that the forgiveness and mercy we've received would be given. And as we go into this invitation, if someone has given their life to Christ, give them the courage to just come and say, Pastor Aaron, I want to be part of this church. I want to be baptized. I want to follow Jesus. Give them the courage as we're singing to come and to let the world know that they've been saved.
If they need someone to pray with them, let them come. I'll pray with them. But Lord, may these altars be open to the church as well to say I'm going to change the way I deal with people in my life. And it has to start with me. We love you, Lord. Thank you for hearing us. Lord, as we pray and as we sing, Lord, continue to hear us as we pour out our hearts to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 